You're listening to the Food Freedom Podcast, hosted by me, Dylan Murphy, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Food Freedom Podcast explores the topics of intuitive eating, mindset, and body respect to help you create a lifestyle of lasting food freedom. We believe it's possible to feel confident in your food choices and connected to your body. And here on Food Freedom Podcast, we will show you how. I am a registered dietitian nutritionist and owner of Dylan Murphy Nutrition, a nutrition coaching practice helping women make peace with food, heal their relationship with their body, and create sustainable health habits. We welcome all foods over here, from kale salads to queso and everything in between. Let's dive in. Welcome back to another episode of Food Freedom Podcast. I have really been counting down the days until this episode released. I thoroughly enjoyed this interview and I'm very excited for y'all to get to listen in. I had the honor of sitting down with Dr. Hillary McBride, who is the author of Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image. And we connected via Instagram probably about six months ago. Well, maybe a little more than that now. What is time (laughs) in 2020? Um, After I read her book and just was so, so inspired by the message that she shared and the knowledge and the wisdom. And now it's become one of the first books I recommend to really anyone. And a little bit more on Hillary. She is best known as the co-host of the Liturgist podcast and also the host of the CBC podcast, Other People's Problems. In her day-to-day work and in years of training, she focuses on research and clinical work at the intersection of spirituality and mental health, sex and sexuality, and feminist approaches to psychology. Her first book, like I mentioned, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are, was published in 2017. And she has a new book coming out the end of 2021 or early 2022 entitled, This is My Body, Embodiment, and Why It Matters for Just About Everything. Hillary's been recognized by the American Psychology Association and the Canadian Psychology Association for her research addressing our relationships with our body across the lifespan and how to make home within our bodily selves. And all of that that I just mentioned are topics that we really dive into in today's conversation. And Hillary is a wealth of knowledge on all of those topics. And I wanted to take a minute just to read an excerpt from her book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, so that for those of you who have not read it yet can get a feel for just her approach and her knowledge. And then we will dive into today's conversation. So reading from her book, what if we quit the game? What if each of us were already enough in gaining weight, losing weight, stretch marks, gray hair, wrinkles, cellulite, weren't things we were afraid of or had power over us, but were things kind of like eye color that maybe we noticed, but learned to work with, accept, and even enjoy because they were unique about us. What if these things and others, instead of being the ruler we used to measure ourselves against to feel bad or good about how we looked, were just things about other people that we noticed, but that was it. What if when we saw other people or ourselves in the mirror, 
We saw a real three-dimensional human being with hopes, wounds, losses, talents, and quirks that were unique instead of a person reduced to a series of physical characteristics. What if when we saw other people or ourselves in the mirror, we saw a real three-dimensional human with hopes, wounds, losses, talents, and quirks that were unique instead of a person we reduced to a series of physical characteristics? Comparison forces us to push each other away, seeing the differences instead of joining together or seeing the beauty, the strengths, the common humanity. So here is today's conversation with Dr. Hillary McBride. Welcome back to another episode of Food Freedom Podcast. I have the honor of introducing Dr. Hillary McBride onto the show today. Hillary, welcome to Food Freedom Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Yeah, I was telling you before we hit record, but I've been very excited for this interview. I know a lot of my clients who listen will be very, very thrilled about this as well. And just all of our other listeners, I know this conversation is going to be so rich and so impactful for so many. So thanks for taking time to come oh, yeah, with me. You're welcome. I'm so glad. And to all of yeah. those of you who, yeah, who are with us, so mm-hmm. grateful to, to be in your ears. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love it. <laughs> I know podcasts are so funny because it's like we're recording and who knows when people will be listening and That's right. who we're talking to and yeah, all of that. And yeah. If you're driving or at the gym yes. or on a walk or. Yes. Or I know. Just, I always think about mm-hmm. that. Um, <laughs> so kind of to start, I would love even in, in reading over your bio and just, I feel like you wear a lot of different hats and I would love to hear just kind of like what a day in your life looks like. There may be days that look different than others, but just kind of what, kind of what you do, who you are, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I think, um, yeah. What's a day in the life. I think an orienting principle for me is around learning and being connected to people. I think that that's probably a, a string that threads through everything that I do, that there's something about being with other humans, the human experience, and that is deeply connected to my longing to understand what it means to be me, to help other people understand what it means to be them. And so that might be the soil that everything else grows from. But I I have a private practice, so I see clients or patients regularly throughout the week. I used to have a lot more traveling and speaking in my schedule, but now I'm in my office or in my home office on Zoom a lot more. And then um, I teach. I teach at the University of BC, so I'm teaching, and that is also online right now. And then usually a couple times a week, I'm doing media interviews or Mm. podcasting or something like that. And then in the little bit of writing time that I have. Yeah. I'm usually working on some writing projects, some research, uh, doing some data analysis. I've got a bunch of things on the go that I'm working on in the kind of the academic sphere in terms of empirical research and uh, yeah, exploratory research. So yeah, there's usually a hodgepodge of things in there. I've usually got a cup of tea in my hands and yeah. <laughs> yes. reading, reading late into the night about the things that are really important. Mm. So yeah, yeah, I love that. And I love how you describe where it's everything kind of is interwoven together and you mm-hmm. kind of fulfill your passion and values in various different ways, which is cool. Yeah, it seems like it gives me a lot of variety, even mm-hmm. though I feel like I'm doing the same work in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I was talking to a very close friend of mine and she was talking about how at work this week, it feels like, 
yeah, it's all the same thing. And I was reflecting mm-hmm. on just how much variety I have. Even in my clinical work, I see a different person every 50 minutes. And so it really gives me a sense of like, wow, there's so many stories out there. There's so many bodies. Yes. There's so many mm-hmm. ways to work with people. And I think that for yeah. me, that's a really big part of thriving is having, yeah. having some variety, some change. Yeah. Oh, I agree with that. I even noticed with clients I see, I mean, I could see two clients back to back that maybe on paper have like similar diagnoses or similar certain things, but just the way it presents or the conversation that it sparks right. is so different. Yes, yeah. yeah. So it seems like every person is an adventure. Every person, every conversation is a new place that we go that we haven't been yes. before. Yes. There is um, something so rich and unexpected and rewarding about living in that space with people where you never know where you're going to go. Yeah, absolutely. So what sparked your interest into, was counseling like the first thing that you started um, or kind of what, yeah, sparked your journey into what you do now? Yeah. I always like to say that counseling was my plan C like to be a psychologist was really like not even on the radar really. Um, Both my parents, my parents are therapists. And so I had this uh, sense that I would just be kind of doing the family business or something Mm -hmm. like that. Not that we ever had a, a family business where they were in practice together, but it was something I just didn't feel like I I wanted to pursue. I wanted to feel like I could find my own voice. And at the Mm. same time, I think growing up in a context where deep empathic listening and Mm. being curious about patterns in human behavior was part of our dinner table conversation. It just meant that I was kind of grown, grown again, to use that imagery, grown in the soil of what it means to be attentive to other people's pain and to be self-reflective about our role in it. Mm. So I, I went to university to study violin and I did. And wow. then at some point I was, you know, I felt like this pattern of perfectionism that I had in relationship with my violin was deeply embroiled in my connection with an eating disorder that I've been struggling mm. with for some years. And I had grown up around a lot of midwives coming in and out of our house, particularly because of some of my dad's professional affiliations. And so mm-hmm. I went and lived in a birth house in the Northern Philippines for a number of months. And that was this interest I had in re narrating what it meant to be a body, uh, wow. looking for a new adventure about what it meant to trust my body, to trust my body mm-hmm. as a woman, to trust the body in general. And I feel like birth mm. is a beautiful place to encounter what it means to trust the body in a very visceral yeah. way. And so wanted to be a midwife. And then I didn't get into midwifery school and was devastated and decided to study psychology until I applied again Yeah, and just fell in love with psychology for all the reasons why I think I loved midwifery, but even with more mm-hmm. poignancy that I, I could be with people who were in the mm. midst of something that felt uh, like a kind of unraveling and an awakening at the same time. And that's really how mm. I, I started to understand suffering is this kind of birth that was taking place. Yeah. And if we have the right attention and support and care and guidance, we can transform what our culture has talked about as psychopathology mm. uh, into something we understand as truth-telling understanding Mm -hmm. a way that our pain is manifesting. And if our pain can be heard, then it Mm -hmm. can be delivered into something that feels like new life. Yeah. Gosh. That's that's kind of the, yeah, the connection between Mm -hmm. all of those. And I still play violin and I Mm -hmm. love attending births. I've, I Mm -hmm. am attending births. um, I would say a few times a year for friends or uh, 
uh, for people that I know closely, but for mm. me, I think about psychology and doing this practice as a therapist as kind of being like a midwife of the mind or a midwife of the heart. Wow. Yeah. That's a really cool way to put it. Cause that's what I was thinking through. I feel like you're getting to help women. I don't know if necessarily even more, but maybe just in a different way now than you would have as a midwife that mm-hmm. I'm sure it's still making an impact on like when they, if, or when they give birth stuff that they learn from you impacts that experience mm-hmm. they have, um, feeling connected like, with their body. Yeah. And what's really cool is that feels like a metaphor that transcends even that developmental period of life. Like I work with men at all stages of life. I yeah. work with people who will never birth, who are child-free. Mm-hmm. I work with all sorts of people, people who have had, you know, losses around mm-hmm. pregnancy, mm-hmm. early pregnancy, yeah. early postpartum. And so it seems like there is something in that metaphor that is just human to say that when we are skillfully attended to, we can we can get through anything, knowing mm-hmm. that we're not going to be stuck in the overwhelming fear and uncertainty of what's happening, but that there is something at work in us that we can trust. Mm -hmm. There is something, there is a kind of life that is always searching to come through no matter what's happening. Mm, Yeah. And so one thing that I know you mentioned, I believe quite a bit in your book, Mothers, Daughters and Body Image, which I would love to talk more on. But one thing that um, you mentioned is just this idea of feeling at home in our bodies, feeling connected Mm -hmm. to our bodies Could you, especially for listeners who are kind of like, okay, what does that actually mean? Because I know probably for, you know, myself and for you, it's like, we kind of know what that means. But for someone Mm -hmm. listening, like, what does it mean to feel home in my body or to trust my body, feel safe in it? So yeah, I would love to hear you talk more on that. Sure. I think that there's, as much as we have a kind of body preoccupied culture, Mm -hmm. we are body preoccupied through the lens of self-objectification, which means Mm -hmm. that we have learned to see our bodies from the outside in. A metaphor that I like to use, and I use this quite extensively in my my upcoming book, but is thinking about how we've learned to move out of our own homes and live on the front lawn. And that's kind of how we relate. So many of us relate to our bodies as if we're looking back at our body and seeing it from the outside. And we've like, we're camping out on the front lawn, or maybe you could say like our mind or our awareness has, has lived on the front lawn and is scrutinizing and evaluating what the house looks like from the outside. And so if we're thinking about being at home in our bodies, it's really about moving, moving back on the inside of the home. Mm. Instead of seeing the body just as an image, we see a body as, as living. We see the body mm. as the place where our self is. In fact, I would go so far to argue that we are our bodies, that there is no self outside of our bodies. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about how that makes sense from a philosophical perspective, thinking about things like embodied cognition, which is more of like Mm. neuroscience, but the, the way that everything that we think about as the self primarily has been thought about as thinking or cognitive based activities, but actually the brain is situated in, in flesh, Mm. in a context that has been through trauma and pain and illness and, victory and joy and connection and touch. And so this body that we are is, is the place where our life has happened. And moving mm-hmm. back on the inside of our home means that we are not just so preoccupied with what we look and what the outside is, but mm-hmm. sensing and being attuned to the inner experience of being ourselves. Mm-hmm. And for some people that like, what does that even mean? And so maybe uh-huh. 
like a good place to start is thinking about something like hunger cues, mm. like having attention to what it's like to feel hungry and to know you're full mm-hmm. or what's your temperature? Are you hot? Are you cold? If yeah. you're cold, you put on a sweater. If you're hot, do you take mm. your socks off? Or things like, are you tired? And what tells you that you're tired? Do you notice mm-hmm. that kind of dragging feeling in your shoulders and your chest wants to fold in, your face gets heavy? Well, noticing those things are not appearance-based cues. Those are not mm-hmm. weight or size related. Those are sensing from the inside. And it's yeah. kind of like this sensing that we can learn to do when we really in tune with our body bodily selves helps us move through the world with more wisdom. It's like Mm. our body on the inside is just born with this wisdom that we learn to lose. We learn to leave. We learn to forget or dismiss uh, because it's a liability or because it, you know, we've essentially been told that it, it gets in the way of functioning as a Mm. thriving human in our kind of capitalist Mm. disembodied society. But to be our body is to, is to be connected to intuition and wisdom to be connected to ancestry, to be connected Mm. to um, the earth and the cycles that move Mm -hmm. through our bodies just as we are in the world because Mm -hmm. our life and our natural world is cyclical. So those are some, those are some entry points. I mean, I could talk ad nauseum about it, but I'm hoping that (laughs) just like a little bit of an intro. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Cause also as you're speaking, I think about how I feel like and I've been talking about this with some clients recently, how our culture and our society is so like fast paced too. So even the idea of like slowing down to connect with your body, to even listen to hunger cues, to listen to temperature cues, like, yeah, do I have to go to the bathroom? Like we're almost, I find sometimes moving too fast to be able to recognize that. Yeah. There's so much stuff in the way. And that mm-hmm. stuff in the way is is sometimes important, and sometimes we've just been convinced that it's important. Yeah, doing so many things, and I mean, I fall prey to that constantly because I have mm-hmm. so many things in my life that feel really rich and meaningful, and mm-hmm. and to to do without them would actually feel like such a great loss. But I've been learning that in order to be my full self in all the things that I do, I probably can't do so many things just because mm-hmm. I need to be fully me. It's kind of like I can give 75% of me to a ton of stuff yeah, or I can give a hundred percent of me or be in myself a hundred percent with less. Yeah. Right? Mm. Which is a hard inner tug of war. I know I struggle with that personally of like, I want to be all the things to all the people I want to do, do, yeah. do, do, but then you're forsaking that like connection with yourself and like, what do I really excel at? Where can I really like spend my time and connect with myself? Well, I think where it it really starts to hit home for me is that my clinical judgment when I am with a, with a client, with a patient is an embodied knowing. If there is Mm -hmm. something that I'm with uh, sensing in, in a dynamic with a person, let's just say there's something that feels kind of like off about Mm -hmm. what's happening. I'm feeling disconnected, or there's a sense that like, I have to go a certain place in where, you know, where we're going in the session. I have to ask a certain Mm -hmm. question because there's Mm -hmm. something that feels unfinished. I know that because I'm a body, not Mm -hmm. because I'm scanning all of the possible options in, you know, kind of in my cognition. And so I realized that Although it it means giving up some things to be fully present, mm-hmm. 
I actually do much better work. And mm. that to me feels like the, all the convincing that I need. Like if I can yeah. actually be much more effective, then although I can't do as much, I am, I am being more true to the process. Mm-hmm. And we have this saying yeah. in, in therapy. I remember learning it early on in my grad school training that the best tool in therapy is the person of the therapist. Mm-hmm. That if we are present and engaged, we can adjust, we can adapt, we can feel with the person. Mm-hmm. And empathy, I mean, when we just think about empathy for a moment, it's a bodily process. It's not a series of intellectual ex- exercises or activities. It's feeling mm-hmm. in my body what you're feeling in your body. And if I'm not yeah. connected to me, then I can't do that with you. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so then touching on body image, and even I would love to hear with your book, um, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image. At first, I would love to hear kind of what, because that's your first book. Is that right? It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what inspired that? Like what led you to write a book maybe, but also a book on that topic? Well, the truth is that I'd written it a number of times already, but in the academic sphere. So it's, it's essentially yeah. like a lay version or like a community-based version of my master's thesis. And so, because I had written it for like, gosh, when you write a master's thesis, a research-based qualitative master's mm-hmm. thesis, it's like it's a big yeah. chunk of like yeah. text and page. Mm. And so my thought always was this can't just live on the shelf. They can't just mm. live in these online feces, you know, storage systems mm-hmm. in the on the internet. If it is not accessible for the general public, then I have failed in my research endeavors to transform mm. our cultural narrative about body image. Mm. And I have always been committed to a I, I'm sure I could always find a way to do this better, but I've been committed to a, a feminist perspective mm-hmm. of research, which says I want to make knowledge, I want to make information mm-hmm. accessible, particularly knowledge and information that has the capacity to give us more power, that has mm-hmm. the ability to transform the way that we move through social social spheres and perhaps disrupt the stratification of power. So mm-hmm. I... I felt really compelled from the beginning that I wanted to make the research accessible. And part of doing that was publishing in a form that people would read. If people aren't going to read my, my thesis, then yeah. maybe they'll read this. <laughs> and including some of my own personal narrative and mm-hmm. hopefully making it a little bit more accessible that way. I've heard, although it is quite a different version than the actual thesis that I finished, I've heard that it, it is quite dense still. And so I'm hoping to continue to refine my work just to make it even more accessible and hopefully mm-hmm. to make it even uh, less, make there few, make there be fewer barriers in the future yeah. for some of my research writing. Yeah. I love that. It's cool hearing how you took something you worked so hard on in your thesis and were like, okay, I want other people to read this, but yeah. you know, no one's maybe, maybe there's some people out there. I probably would still go like pick up your thesis and read it, but not sure. most yeah. people. <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah, that's cool. Um, so what would you say in that, in terms of just body image and maybe, gosh, this is probably like a winded question, but like, what, what are maybe some of the biggest things you learned in studying mm-hmm. and interviewing, having conversations with moms and daughters and just humans in general yeah. about body image? Yeah. So one of the most surprising things Okay, I can think of the 
maybe three really kind of shocking things like right off the top of my head. Uh, One of them was that we thought we would never find, my research committee thought we would never find any participants who would Mm self-report as loving their bodies. And gosh, Mm -hmm. now I realize like just how naive that was because there are women who love their bodies all over the place, Mm -hmm. but there's a social silencing that happens when women are doing well in that it seems harder for there to be space for women to have a counter narrative that is about Mm -hmm. thriving in a cultural context where we have been Mm -hmm. told that it's actually essential to hate our bodies. In fact, some of the data that I saw really early on in my literature review was suggesting that prevalence of negative body image or body hatred was so high among women that it might actually be a normative experience in that it was appropriate Mm -hmm. for women to feel that. And I felt this real resistance to say, Mm -hmm. no, but where are these other stories? Mm -hmm. Where are the Mm -hmm. stories of the women who feel differently about their bodies? So I think this, I had really internalized the message that that was true without realizing that women love their bodies all over the place all the time but just don't have any space to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Because when they do talk about it, they're told, you're not allowed to feel that. I can't relate to you. If you don't want to be friends and diet with me, like I don't know what to relate to you about. So there's just all of this stuff around what it means to love your body. So first surprising thing was that I had so many people reach out mm-hmm. to want to participate when I posted wow. my recruit material. And we were just like blown away. It was something like a hundred people in under 24 hours in this like smaller area where I was recruiting. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, whoa, there's something here that we need to Mm -hmm. name. Yeah. And then the second thing that was like, I think really shocking was that the academic literature suggests that mother's body image and mother eating disorder behavior is one of the most significant predictors of child's body image issues, child eating disorder mm-hmm. behavior. And so in my study, for those who have or haven't read it, hopefully this clarifies, I was looking for mm-hmm. young women who love their bodies, but I didn't specify what mothers that of those young women had to feel about their bodies. There was no, mm-hmm. there was no um, inclusion criteria about saying, okay, you as a young woman have to love your body and your mother does to participate. It was just looking at young women who love their bodies and saying, can I also talk to your mom too? I just want to kind of see how this all shook out. And when I started talking to moms, it was pretty clear that a number of them had really struggled with their bodies. Mm -hmm. And yet here they were having daughters, raising daughters who were fiercely proud, embodied, connected to themselves, really attuned to their bodily self, eating intuitively, like empowered in their bodies, free. And so it really disrupted this narrative that we have that if you are a mom who had or has a body image issue or an eating disorder, that it basically guarantees that your kids Mm. will. And we just got to see how there could be a disruption in, in, I don't want to say dysfunction, but in that particular narrative of being a body that moms, even if you do struggle, that you can have kids who don't if you take mm. some of the right steps to do things differently. Yeah. And then I would say probably one of the last pieces is that mm. I really developed a an understand more of an understanding of what embodiment is instead of just healthy body image by researching these this group of young women. And mm-hmm. so instead of just saying that they liked their appearance, they saw their body as so much more than appearance based. In mm-hmm. fact, they saw their body in a kind of spiritual way where it was mm-hmm deeply connected to life and to goodness and to love and to power and heritage and the land. Mm -hmm. 
And so these young women who love their bodies were not just looking in the mirror saying, I like how I look, but saw their physicality, their freedom, their expansion, their power, their interconnectedness as a deep component of their ability to love their bodily selves. Mm. That's yeah. Cause that almost answers a question I was going to ask and how, okay. how you define loving your body. And I think that helps people to see. And I have that conversation all the time because I think there's this idea I at least see with a lot of my clients that in order to love your body, it means that you look in the mirror every day and you're like, I look oh. great. This is great. It's a perfect day, perfect body. But I feel oh, like it's, huh. it's not that, like, I think no, it's getting no. like, like that's, <laughs> that's totally missing the point where it's like, we're all human. Like we're, there's imperfections yes. about our body that, that don't need to be hidden. That don't need to like, that just make us who we are. Um, that's right. Yeah. And anybody who's been in a relationship, anyone who's been in love knows that you don't see the other person as completely flawless. You say, mm. okay, when we have a misunderstanding or like when we disconnect from each other, when there's something that doesn't quite compute, how do we find a way back to each other? And that's love, yeah. right? Mm. It's saying like, I'm actually con- committed to the unfolding story of who you are. I'm mm. committed to the unfolding story of who we are together. Yeah, And that, I think when I ask the question, like, what does it mean to love my body or love your body is to say, I'm committed to this journey of being in relationship with my body in a way where I am not doing more harm. And if I do, Mm. I repair, I repair it. I say, I'm sorry. I take steps to learn how to do things differently and not, I feel perfectly attuned to my bodily self every moment of every day, but like looking at the patterns, right. In the Mm -hmm. same way that if we're thinking about times in my life where I've been on the road traveling because I've been speaking and I haven't seen my husband for a week. Can I come home? And, and there is that real disconnection. Like mm-hmm. we talk on the phone, but it's not the same as sleeping yeah. in the same bed every night. And then we come home and we have these rituals to connect and we go for mm-hmm. dinner and we spend time together talking. We tell the stories of what happened when we were apart. Mm-hmm. And that is also love, right? Mm-hmm. So even in the disconnection or the distance the reconnection to undo the pattern of disconnection is part of love to say we found mm. our way back to each other. Yeah. And I think that's, that's true about how we are with our bodies too. Mm. So what are some things you see or have learned that really help people in general to connect back with their body or to even begin that journey towards like moving away from just a negative or a hate for their body into mm-hmm. a more like love and respect for it? Yeah. I think we, we don't emphasize the role of pleasure enough. So Mm -hmm. taking pleasure, and I'm not just talking about sexual pleasure, although I think Mm -hmm. that that's a really important part of this for Mm -hmm. some people's journey, but sensuality and the enjoyment of being a body is, um, Mm -hmm. is something that is extremely therapeutic. It can often be very disruptive if we don't know how to be in our body to to enjoy the taste of something or enjoy the feeling of something, yeah. but looking for experiences where we feel joy and then thinking about joy or pleasure is not just constructs we can think about or name intellectually, but how do you know you feel that? Mm-hmm. Like a very, a very interesting exercise is to take those two words, joy and pleasure, and think about the next time that you feel them, next time you're about to feel them. And immediately come out of your mind and the story that you're telling into what tells me that I feel pleasure. Do I, do I feel like I want to shimmy? Does my chest open up? Do I have a smile on my face? Do I feel energy moving up and down my Mm. spine? Um, 
Do I sense a warmness kind of like pooling around my belly? Do I feel vibration? Like there's this um, kind of buzzing on the inside. Mm -hmm. Like what does pleasure feel like? Mm -hmm. And taking ourselves out of even the situation that's causing the pleasure into whether it's like a delicious food or an enjoyable sound or a kind of touch into what's happening in my body right now. Mm. And that can probably be a really a much easier entry point than something like uh, feel your trauma, be in your body and your trauma, feel your chronic Mm. pain, feel your discomfort. Those are important things too. But if we're just doing that, we're missing the goodies of (laughs) being Mm. a body, like all of these enjoyable experiences too. Yes. And one thing that comes to mind for me, even thinking about enjoying the way our body responds to food and how we enjoy the taste and the pleasure of meals, but then looking at how foods are marketed to us of like, this is a like guilt-free food or a sinful chocolate or like something like that, where then if you're feeling this pleasure, it almost makes it seem like, oh, well, this is a sinful chocolate. So is this even good for my body to be feeling like it's so you're right. We really have to come out of those stories that that were handed about what we should feel, what we should want, or what it should be like into asking like, what, what's actually happening on the inside for me, which is Mm -hmm. why staying with pleasure or uh, joy is such a complicated thing because it means hearing our voice in the midst of all of these, this chorus of other voices that have told us how we should feel and think and eat and behave. And it is really a kind of coming home to ourselves that happens at the same time when we learn to separate what do other people think from what do I actually think and what do I feel and what is it like on the inside of me? Hmm. And do you feel like that's hard for people to do when it's like they're, we're in a world that's screaming like, and maybe some facets of the world that are screaming, like disconnect with your body, busy yourself, compare yourself to these people, and then trying to really be embodied in like who you are. Yeah. (laughs) And I will mention that there is a long tradition of embodiment Mm -hmm. in non-Western, non-white culture Mm -hmm. that does not, I mean, there are communities around the world that are not having conversations about how to become embodied again, because they have been doing it since the beginning of time and they haven't existed within white supremacy in such a way that they have had to, Mm. had to leave their bodies just to be a part of like the dominant cultural narrative and empire. So, Mm. I mean, not every culture is perfect and there are challenges in other places as well, but I think it's important to look at the specificity of the question that we're asking and how it's situated in mm. a any community of people who come from kind of like Western white European ancestry, yeah. where disembodiment was part of the both the spiritual practice, mm. uh, the philosophy of the time, and the way to accrue power over other groups of people who were not as disembodied. Right, mm. there is a deeply. Uh, inequitable, I would say oppressive, not just inequitable, but an oppressive Mm -hmm. narrative with disembodiment in which people who were able to be disembodied gave themselves more power, more social power, and then punished and used other Mm -hmm. bodies that were not as disembodied. Mm -hmm. So 
when we are asking the question about disembodiment, we need to think about our legacy of where that comes from. Yeah. That we we yeah. exist in a culture that has asked us to be disembodied, but it has also worked for us. It has allowed us to produce more. Is it and it has hurt us. Mm-hmm. It's hurt us as people, and and all of those things are deeply intertwined. The way that disembodiment can help us survive and thrive in capitalist societies where bodies are treated as objects to be used, Mm. but also hurts us and disconnects us from our deep wisdom and knowing that is inherently ours from the beginning. Mm. So yeah, embodiment and being our bodies in culture. I think we need to understand that legacy. And then, right. I think to your point, our, our whole culture has, has invited us to come out of our bodies. And when we do that, we are just being exactly who we were told to be. Mm. It, I don't think we need to personalize this and say, I'm a bad human if I got disembodied or if I yeah. was doing what my school system told me to and what my family narrative around emotion and sexuality mm. told me to and my faith context or whatever it is, but to say, okay, here I am. And maybe I'm realizing that the ways I've been cut off from myself hurt me and hurt other people. And it's time to start that journey of reconnection. And there are so many people who are doing that at this time. And Mm. we get to fortunately benefit from, from the work of so many other people in other cultures who have, have stayed connected to their bodies. I mean, Mm. I think about the yogic practice and what it means to do yoga and how some people, I mean, I, I don't do yoga. I, I don't regularly practice it, but I, know so many people who have found their way back to their bodies through yo- through yoga mm-hmm. but we need to remember that 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 practice comes from um, from a cultural place and we have to be careful about how we are honoring our learning as it's connected to the deep well of wisdom from another cultural tradition mm-hmm. yeah how all of these things get messy as we are coming yes. back into our bodies yes it's interesting you bring up yoga too because I remember when I was working with a therapist for several years and she one of her recommendations for me was like, I really think it'd be beneficial for you to do yoga because I was very disembodied and not connected to myself. And even like, I remember it being like, oh, this, I can like, I feel like I'm like having it again now. Like I remember how I felt when she was like, you should do yoga. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, <laughs> like that sounds like a nightmare. And I, yeah. I can remember like my first yoga class going to it and being like, I have to get out. Like, this is terrible. Like wow. feeling like to connect, like, I don't want to feel these things. Yes. Um, yes. Which is cool now to see. I mean, like you, I don't regularly practice yoga, but it's something that I now enjoy. Like I find myself sometimes mm. craving, like, okay, wow. I really do want to go to yoga now. Um, so I think that like I've been able to prove to myself, like, okay, I can get connected back to my body and wow, and what that looks like. And I think. For other clients too, I mean, a lot of what we talk about is when we have these like negative or limiting beliefs around like, I'll never be connected with my body. That feels impossible. Like, can I, can I ever, or my, my mom was like this, my grandma, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But then when you can see like, there's so many humans in the world who, who are connected with their body. So the, the same could be true for you. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's actually our natural state. Like it's, yeah. when we think about it, we have we might have to realize at some point just how unnatural it is that this mm-hmm. feels so natural to be yeah. so disconnected. Like mm-hmm. what is happening 
mm-hmm. that we have found it so effortless to be so outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like there is something going on here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, it almost feels like kind of similar to what I envision eating disorders too. almost feels like a false sense of safety. Like if I'm not connected with my body or if I'm following these rules that my eating disorder is telling me to, I feel safe, even though, Mm. you know, we know that it's, it's this false sense of safety. It's really anything but safety, but, Mm -hmm. but it feels like it. So then to let go of that and to step into a journey of embodiment it can feel like scary of like, well, what, what's going to happen? Like, what if it isn't Mm -hmm. safe? What's it going to look like? There's, there can be a lot of unknowns. I feel like for someone, especially if they've never truly felt what it feels like to be in their body. That's right. It can be Mm -hmm. terrifying. And it's very easy. I mean, another thought that just keeps coming up is even social media, I feel like has a big impact on one a way that we can busy ourselves and and not be connected with our body of like, I have one second of free time and I need to grab my phone and just fill my thoughts with that so that I don't have to sit in silence or feel connected to my body. And then what, what fills our screen on social media um, images and things like that, that almost pull us further away from our body too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. Um, so talk to me a little more. I know you said you're, um, you have a book launching soon. Is that right? In, in 2021, is that live news or we had the date, it was supposed to be out February, 2021. Mm -hmm. And we've had the date change and a bunch of things because of COVID there's actually, I just learned Uh, from my agent, there's a paper shortage because (gasps) of work, uh, like work changing in terms of access to paper. So there's all of these things that have changed. So uh, I think it will come out right now, end of 2021 or beginning okay. of 2022, but it's called, this is awesome. my body. And mm. it's all about essentially how to be a body, how to That's remember awesome. our bodily selves when we have been disconnected. Mm. And I use the story of my remembering of my body. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there are so many ways to remember that we are bodies. There's so many cultural roots in, there are so many practices mm-hmm. And I, this is not meant to, meant to be the, the one and only true way, but rather mm-hmm. an invitation to remember ourselves as bodies and why that's important and mm-hmm. talk about some practices to get back inside our bodily selves. So it's yeah. very much a mix of narrative and research and practice. Yeah. Uh, well, I look forward to reading that when mm, it comes thank out. Thank you. Yeah. Me too. I'm so <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the way I love to end interviews with guests is kind of switching gears, but as a dietitian and really as helping women not only become more connected with their body, but even be more connected with food and the enjoyment and the pleasure and really moving away from what culture and diets mm-hmm. and that sort of thing tells us. And So one of the things I love to learn about people is just what is a favorite food memory that you have? Because I think we're also taught that food isn't necessarily meant to be fun or to be enjoyed, um, to be pleasurable. So what are, what's a favorite food memory that stands out to you? Oh, I have uh, just a bajillion. Yeah. Um, One of the, the first one that came to mind just off the top of my head is making cinnamon buns with my mom Mm -hmm. on the regular and being, Mm -hmm. she'd make the dough and. I get to roll, like help her roll it out. And I, I recently took a video of her doing it because there's something about watching her hands as she's rolling yeah. the dough mm-hmm. that just feels like, oh, I could just feel so tearful thinking about it. Cause it mm-hmm. feels so like it's, 
I have this memory of seeing her body and rolling the dough and tasting it. And when they get caramelized and uh, the way that the house smells and she would make mm-hmm. this very, <laughs> really funny thing. Every Christmas Eve we'd have for dinner, we'd have cinnamon buns, but arranged in the pan in the shape of a Christmas tree. And she decorated mm-hmm. it like it was a Christmas tree with different like yeah. jeweled fruits and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think about that coming up and how excited I am to see my mom's mm-hmm. hands roll the dough yeah. and to smell that in the house and to taste oh. those buns. And mm. I love that. I love that so much. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time for this interview. It really blessed me and I know it's going to impact so many mm-hmm. people who listen. Um, so thank you just for sharing your, your knowledge and your wisdom You're with welcome. us. Oh, yeah. Dylan, what a pleasure to be with you. And I'm so grateful. I'm glad we had this time together and whoever yes. you are listeners, wherever you are, I'm so glad we got to be in your ears today and, and be connected with you. Yes. So good. Thank you so much for listening to our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Food Freedom Podcast. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at Free Method Nutrition for more inspiring content on food freedom, intuitive eating, body respect, and many other things. If you're curious how you can support our podcast and help it to reach more people like you, we would love if you would take a minute to rate and review the show. We drop new episodes every Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe so you always catch our latest conversations. See you next episode.